Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on Making Sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan Corporate and Investment Bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Hi, I'm Eloise Goulder, head of the Data Assets and Alpha Group here at J.P. Morgan. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Jamie Wise, who is founder, president, and CEO of hedge fund Periscope Capital and Buzz Holdings ULC. Jamie's done some really in-depth work, quite pioneering work, really, around social sentiment and having a lens on the retail investor, which regular listeners to this podcast will know is also a theme that our team are heavily interested in. So Jamie, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So could you start by setting the scene and introducing yourself and your firm and what you do and what you really stand for? Sure. Thanks. So my name is Jamie Wise. I'm the founder and CEO of Periscope Capital, which is a Toronto-based hedge fund. Generally speaking, we have a background in equity derivatives and look for arbitrage and arbitrage-like strategies. So we invest across a range of different strategies, traditional ARB strategies, some more nuanced, and obviously have a deep interest in natural language processing and what we can glean from whether you call it sentiment or other insights from conversations regarding stocks. So I began my career actually 25 years ago. I'm dating myself here in New York City, where we're sitting today uh, at Citibank. And I ended up running their Canadian equity derivatives trading business, which was a general business. And we focused on index arbitrage strategies, index options, single stock options, Delta One strategies, really the gamut. And from there, I moved back to my native Toronto and spent five years working for Bank of Montreal, where I ran a host of trading strategies on their proprietary trading desk. I started Periscope Capital in 2009, and we've been at it ever since, deploying to a range of arbitrage-like strategies, beginning with a unique closed-end fund arbitrage strategy that was focused on the Canadian closed-end fund market segment, which was an ARB strategy that existed then that doesn't today. And I think that'll be a theme of what we talk about a little today, strategies come and go. About a decade ago, we became very interested in natural language processing and applying that to what we were seeing was growing amounts of online conversation, which led to the creation of the Buzz Index back in 2015. So it's been around for quite some time, but that's generally speaking a broad measure of uh, investor sentiment towards large cap U.S. equities. And that was the first of a series of research projects around that space that we've been really interested in for some time. Brilliant. You've mentioned the broad range of strategies that you have experience in over the past, a lot within the equity derivative space and perhaps the more fundamental-based ARB space. So how do you think about marrying all of those strategies with your more NLP-based social sentiment strategies? Do you think of them as completely distinct and just two different sets of workflow or are they interrelated in some way? I think they are distinct. The one thing that might connect all the varying strategies that we think about is just our natural thirst for research and interest in arbitrage strategies. With an arbitrage background, especially in Canadian markets, where the depth of some of those markets is less than what you would see elsewhere in the world, 
it almost forces you to constantly reevaluate your strategy and think about new strategies. So I think part of my natural curiosity and the way I think about things has always been looking for those types of opportunities, thinking about what might be coming in a Canadian sense. I am Canadian, so we'll use the hockey analogy where the puck is going as opposed to where the puck is today. That's so interesting. Thank you. And I guess in following the next theme, you must also be looking for the next set of data and following where data sets are available. You mentioned earlier that you were noticing reams of social media text. And ultimately, that must have been an opportunity for you to dive into that and leverage that data. Yeah, oftentimes when you start thinking about a new strategy, you don't know where it's going to take you. And I feel we need to be open-minded to that and just start doing the work to see where it goes. And that's really the approach we took with understanding social media data and understanding, is it sentiment or is it something different? When we first started our research into this a decade ago, we thought to ourselves, there's lots of people talking about stocks and leaving a digital trail about doing that. And it was always a part of the market that fascinated me. Intuitively, we all know sentiment is a thing that exists. It drives asset prices. It's the impossible thing to measure because how do you measure sentiment? Is it done by proxy? Is it done by something like the VIX index, put call ratios? Anecdotally, we hear all the time experts come on television and podcasts talking about sentiment and making statements about sentiment being either high or low or a contrarian trade. And my thinking at the time was simply, if more and more people will be comfortable talking about stocks online, just as they are talking about their social experiences or where they eat, where they travel, then wouldn't it be amazing to be able to analyze that conversation and know what that conversation is telling us because it must have value and maybe it could unlock the key to sentiment. We'll see in our research. Okay, that's great context. So what exactly did you do here? Well, the first thing we realized is we didn't have the resources internally to just start analyzing the sentiment from online posts. But where we were fortunate being based in Toronto is just down the street was the University of Toronto. And uh, a professor there who ran their computer science department, you may be familiar with today, his name was Jeff Hinton, who is known as the godfather of AI. But they had really deep expertise in natural language processing and a wonderful program. So I went down the street and started knocking on professors' doors saying, hey, we need to find some great candidates here who want to come on a journey with us and learn about investment sentiment. And we were able to find our first NLP engineers to help build our computers to analyze that data set. And it was funny, you think about it 10 years ago, we were online trying to buy NVIDIA GPUs to build computers powerful enough to measure sentiment. You know, the kids named the GPUs Ava and Jarvis. If anyone's familiar with Ex Machina or Iron Man, you'll, you'll get those references. And so we had the hardware to do it, and then we had to start training models. And we spent a lot of time thinking about those models, training domain-specific finance models, because people talk differently about stocks than they do about their vacations and trips to the store. And once we had the models in place, we could start labeling and understanding sentiment at the post level. People were positive or negative with respect to the stock as an investment opportunity. And then we were asked and created an index to track this. The index is the buzz index, and it was created to track broad aggregate investor sentiment. And what that means is everyone's voice counted. It was the reflection of the aggregate community's view on individual stocks. And the basic guidelines for the index were every month it would rebalance and the constituents would include the top 75 large cap U.S. equities that exhibited the highest degree of positive investor sentiment. And we put that index out into the world in December 15, and it's been around since and has generated a really interesting live track record. 
Thank you. Well, I want to dive into that index and learn about the track record. But just before we go there, it's so interesting to hear that your background is very much in the finance domain rather than the AI tech type domain and how you went about finding and sourcing that sort of talent and then working with that talent to create your signals, I think is really fascinating. What are your thoughts really on how one should best combine finance domain knowledge with tech knowledge? I think you do need that balance. It's difficult to find someone who's a computer engineer, a natural language processor. They may have a love of markets, but they may not be as familiar with some of the nuances, especially around text and what certain language may mean, what it may not mean, sarcasm, all of those elements that on a trading floor, you'd be very familiar or even just As a participant in financial markets, you'd be very familiar with the language that's being used. And I think it's really great for an organizational culture as well. I've loved the journey of learning about the tools, the AI tools, how they're built, how you train them, what you should expect from them. And conversely, I know that our engineers have loved getting to know markets better. So I think it really can help everyone achieve the goal to understand why we're working on the project and learn from each other and do the research together. That's really wonderful. I can imagine that both the tech AI people and you and your finance domain colleagues could really enjoy that process of learning each other's skill sets. Absolutely. Great. So diving into your social sentiment index then, my first question is, what has the track record been? It's been really interesting to watch the index perform, and we've learned a lot about it in the last eight years. What we've come to understand, because it's an aggregate representation, It really does a good job of measuring sentiment as a factor, is the way I think about it. So while you can have growth and value and momentum and maybe alpha in the past, part of that alpha was sentiment. We think we can now isolate the sentiment and there's alpha remaining past that. In the first four years of its existence, I think it outperformed the S&P three out of those four years but it tracked performance closely. And the reason it did was the constituents of the index were typically S&P 500 companies. At the time, most of the online conversation was tracking the biggest companies. The the larger the company, the more likely it was that people were talking about it. So in that aggregate view, the positive sentiment versions of those companies would appear in the index. And it did certainly add some value and was able to outperform the S&P. In 2020, everything changed. It changed for all of us. It changed for COVID. It changed in markets. And we see that change being reflected in the buzz index as well, where all of a sudden new types of companies start showing up. Future hope thematic-like companies, which were dominating the online conversation as speculation was growing during the COVID time period, and people were really latching on to these themes and discussing them, and we could see these stocks appearing in the buzz index, and that started really skewing performance. Of course, in 2020, it was such a bull run, the buzz index dramatically outperformed, and it still hung on to some of that in 2021, but as we saw a lot of those stocks reset, In 2022, the buzz index had a big reset as well. Interestingly, so far in 2023, the buzz index has outperformed the S&P again, approximately double its performance for the year, which is really telling because I think coming out of that experience of COVID where these high sentiment, high thematic like stocks, which were being talked about across social media platforms, had their day and then lost their day in financial markets, probably thought that was the end of the story. But I think what the buzz index shows is it's not the end of the story. The sentiment of the market around those stocks is coming through again in 2023, and we see it in the performance of the buzz index. So it's been fascinating. 
absolutely. And it's particularly interesting to me that you've seen this step change in the types of stocks that are noted in your buzz index post-COVID, because of course, we've also seen that the retail share of volumes in US markets has gone up meaningfully post-COVID and it hasn't dropped since. And I think a lot of market participants were expecting the retail share of volume to go up just for the COVID period and the meme stock phenomena that we all witnessed in January 2021 and then expected that phase to dissipate. But it hasn't dissipated in terms of the gross retail share of volumes that we see in US markets. So no surprise, perhaps, that you also continue to observe a real difference in the stocks that are being identified by the retail investors on social media since then. Yeah, it's really interesting to understand people's expectations versus what's really happening in the marketplace. You mentioned the trading volumes. You see a reflection of that in the buzz index. We hear a lot regarding the index that, oh, the buzz index must just be a momentum index because if people are talking online, they're probably talking about momentum stocks. It couldn't be farther from being a momentum index because really there's two reasons why people talk positively about stocks. One could be momentum. You have a price chart going from the bottom left to the top right. There's an expectation of that continuing. But value is another reason why people talk about stocks, stock prices that have fallen too far, that represent value, that now is the time to buy them. And the buzz index kind of picks up on both of these. And and that's another reason why we really see it as a separate factor, because it doesn't correlate to the other factors, especially momentum where people think about it. So interesting. And I think you make a really compelling case for sentiment to be another factor, just like momentum or value. As you say, it is distinct. It is different. It's not just following the momentum factor. And it's really meaningful now if you look at retail share of volumes in US markets and in many other global markets. So the idea that the retail investors sentiment should be a factor with, by the sounds of it, positive returns over time, absolutely makes sense to me. Have you found traction in that idea across the global investing community? There's still, surprisingly, a healthy degree of skepticism when it comes to aggregate sentiment or sentiment as a factor. I personally believe a lot of that stems from many in the community being trained on the concept of sentiment being somehow contrarian. It seems to be accepted as fact with no data or proof behind that, which is part of the reason I began or we began this research journey 10 years ago to validate that claim or refute Mm. it. These kinds of factor approaches to exposures aren't meant to be alpha strategies or outperforming of broader equity markets year in, year out. They're meant to be able to understand what could be driving performance in any given year. And sometimes growth leads over value. Sometimes momentum leads over value. Sometimes sentiment leads over growth. It's just another tool in your quiver, depending on how you think about your portfolio, your portfolio construction, what exposures you're looking for. Again, it's that arrow in the quiver where you can now isolate that factor. And to the extent you think value is going to have its day, you There's a methodology for identifying value stocks. Buzz is simply a methodology for identifying sentiment stocks. It makes sense. And I guess to state the obvious, really, one of the big drawbacks of the sentiment factor, which presumably is one of the drivers of the skepticism that you note there, is just the fact that we don't have a lot of history, that social media platforms themselves are relatively new in the grand scheme of financial markets. And also, presumably, things are really changing every month and every year as social media platforms change and as consumers' adoption of those changes and as different cohorts of retail investors emerge. I mean, what's your take on how this is evolving and how quickly this is evolving? 
Well, I think there was likely an expectation similar to the retail trading flows that it might be a temporary phenomenon where you'd see a big spike of conversation or people discussing stocks online and then taper away as we get back to whatever normal was before that. But we don't see that. And I think part of the reason is when people have a positive engagement with something, they want to stay with it, right? So to the extent people went online and enjoyed discussing stocks specifically within a specific community, whatever online platform they're using. They found value in that. They found value in that feedback. It's the biggest water cooler in the planet, right? And so people like to talk about a stock story. And here is a chance for them to really engage in broader audience and hear people's other people's views on stocks. They've largely stuck with it. And so that conversation continues to be very robust, more robust than many would have thought. And I wouldn't expect it to revert back simply because when something adds value to your discussion, your point of view, you'll likely keep using the platforms. Absolutely. So coming back to your work where you're obviously in pursuit of alpha, how exactly are you finding alpha in this space? Is it simply in following the broad aggregate sentiment and how that tracks over time, which sounds pretty volatile, even if the trend is up? Or is there much more nuance under the surface? Way more nuance under the surface. (laughs) It's a huge question and we could spend an hour talking about it. But yes, our goal is to find alpha and arbitrage-like strategies. So how do we find value and alpha in our data set and in the work that we've done? That is a long journey of a research question. The buzz is what it is, which is that broad representation. We spent a lot of time thinking about, is there signal in that for a quant-like strategy? What is the data set exactly? What do we have? How do we think about, instead of just the aggregate community, individuals or certain platforms better than other platforms or certain individuals better than other individuals? And so a lot of technology and data science went into our approach to try and solve and find some alpha in that data set. Generally, what we've come to believe is It's a community in aggregate, but it is also individual idea generation. And the alpha journey or the research behind identifying alpha is to identify who in the community or what groups or in computer science language clusters of individuals might be expert versus average versus below average. And how do you think about grouping individuals together for the purpose of idea generation? It's similar in many ways to the problem that many multi-manager platforms face today. They want investment teams that are top tier, that have great and unique idea generation, that can not just follow the basic crowd. And how do you find those teams? How do you validate those teams? How do you vet them? Is it just performance-based? Is there another way of thinking about how they might be a quality team and then hire them onto a platform to provide idea generation? We try to do that same approach, but at scale, without the knowledge of individuals actually knowing that they might be part of a cluster or a team for idea generation. And there's lots of different ways of thinking about how you might put individuals together to form a super team for idea generation. There's ways of evaluating language that they're using, type of language, tone of language, stocks that they're being discussed, thoughtfulness. And that was the genesis of the big research that we've done here is to think about the data set that we have is really the hunting grounds for alpha capture. There's all these investment ideas and stock recommendations coming out of that noisy data set. Some of it's fantastic. Some of it's terrible. Some of it or a lot of it may just be really noisy. 
how do we really find the great ideas from the right groups of people from that data set? That's all the research that led to a process that we call Periscope Fusion, which is separate from just the broad aggregate buzz measure. So interesting. Thank you for providing all of that detail. And presumably there's an alpha signal in both the great performers and also the weak performers to the extent that some cohorts are consistently wrong. Do you also find alpha in reverting, really, the weaker performers? That's a great question. I love that question. And and we have thought about that and studied it at length. Yes, there are some very poor quality teams, we'll call them, who don't give good idea generation or it may be consistently wrong. In theory, a concept or a trade could be to always fade or short those recommendations. But when we think of what we're doing in Fusion, which is trying to create a best-in-class virtual multi-manager platform, and you think of some of those great platforms that exist today in hedge fund land, do those platforms really go out and try and find the worst investors they can, hiring them under the guise of giving us good investment recommendations Mm. and then fading them and shorting them? I'd offer the answer is probably not. And so I don't know that you can count on someone being a consistent poor performer forever, and nor would I want to offer to investors that the, the best trade advice is to do something opposite of what someone's suggesting, but better trade advice might be to listen to top ideas from top quality teams and have more conviction in those idea generations. Speaking about the concept of alpha capture from the retail community, One of the interesting ideas around that is we find, just as there's bias in sentiment and people think it's contrarian, there's a lot of bias in saying the word retail and thinking the word retail means not as good as institutional for whatever reason. And what we've come to find, not only in our research, but just observing this market and the growth of online platforms, there's some fantastic and really intelligent people online talking about stocks with really unique perspectives and diligence. And so while there is a lot of noise, there's a lot of really high quality content or idea generation, if you know how to find it, in all of that noisy universe that might even be a little bit different than you would find in more of a traditional groupthink world where analysts are typically trained in a similar manner and have the same kind of ideas for looking at investment considerations. So I'm always hesitant when we talk about alpha capture using the retail lens because it's much more sophisticated, that analysis, than I think many people give it credit for. I agree that that's somewhat of a counter-consensus view, at least versus history. Of course, this space is evolving very quickly. A funny story, when we started this buzz index way back when, I remember one of the first pushbacks, someone said to me, why do I care what Sally from Indiana thinks about Microsoft? And I said, you should care because Sally may be the greatest research analyst you've never met simply because she's in Indiana and not sitting here in New York. Absolutely. And when you think about the data and the content and the intel that these people have access to, well, first of all, isn't it more widely dispersed? Because, of course, these people are in different geographical locations and perhaps focusing in different industries or with edge in different sectors, depending on what they're doing in the rest of their time. But also, in general, can't you argue that there has been somewhat of a democratization of content available on the internet? It's not even an argument. It's just a fact. Everyone has access today to tools and research and ways of doing their own independent analysis that just didn't exist 10, 20 years ago. So that democratization, and it's not specific to finance, it's really with everything, has allowed people to 
really come to their own independent conclusions, do their own work, have the tools to do their work, have the tools to do fundamental analysis on a company, technical analysis on a company, whatever approach they may want to take, there's not only the tools for them to do it, but there's forums for them to discuss and collaborate around that research and make themselves better. We see that all the time and that's not going away. No, but I guess is one challenge that the space is evolving so rapidly that if you want to backtest a strategy in a traditional quant sense, things are just changing too fast. For example, Sally from Indiana might be much more informed today, presumably is much more informed today than she was five years ago. So how do you analyze that alpha signal given that the history has changed so rapidly? A great question, and it's very difficult because you can't backtest the signal or you can't backtest Sally because you're right, she is different. Ten years ago, the amount of data, the amount of conversation was much less than today, let alone 20 years ago where it didn't even exist. Yeah. So you can't go and just say the kind of conversation happening today, five years ago, 10 years ago is all the same, and we can apply the same analytical approach or research approach to sort of source alpha from it or have conviction around an idea generated from it because it was just so different. So you really have to believe into the context or the approach, which is, do we believe that there are some really high quality individuals out in the world discussing stocks and offering really good investment recommendations or investment ideas that you could consider within your portfolio? Yes. Do you have the ability to identify them? That is the big trick or the most difficult part because the data set is so big and there's so much noise within it. You know, what is the process for identifying outperformers? And you have to really believe that you have a process for identifying and selecting these clusters, teams of individuals for idea generation that are above average performers. Yes. And I love the point you made that the retail investor shouldn't be thought of as one homogenous group at all. In fact, there are so many different cohorts, different ages, different geographical regions, different wealth profiles, some of them much more professional, perhaps in finance than we may think. So all of these different cohorts, or as you put it in data science language clusters, it's such a great point. Yeah, it's completely unfair to group everyone together, whether it's retail investors or any other large group of individuals. There's always more to it and always another layer to peel back. Great. So I guess on the one hand, we both agree, and it's pretty clear, as you say, that the retail investor is getting smarter, has much more access to content and data and intelligence and the ability to collaborate and communicate about that online. So I think that's very loud and clear. But I guess the other trend that's happening at the same time, which presumably is not such a helpful trend for you, is the fact that this space is becoming widely used among the professional investing community. And there are more and more data scientists looking into this data and trying to find alpha signals in this space. And therefore, is there a risk that all of these arbitrage opportunities you refer to are crowded out? It has been a much more competitive space. There's no question about that. A decade ago, when we started building natural language processing models and training them with our own domain-specific training sets and making sure that they could really accurately identify finance-related sentiment or investment ideas from finance-related posts, that was a real competitive advantage for Periscope Capital 10 years ago. It allowed for us to create the buzz index because we had confidence that we could measure post-by-post post sentiment at the individual stock level where that wasn't widely available at the time. 
Today, that data set would be much more widely available or in-house portfolio managers could find the sentiment themselves. And I'll give you two examples. First, the proliferation of alternative data set providers and their adoption of more finely tuned models to a data set. There's many that would offer sentiment data sets, and, and we can discuss whether they're good or bad, but let's say they've been getting better over time. No doubt about that. Second, I would offer the bigger threat to the alternative data set providers is the adoption and creation of large language models. It is amazing when we have tested using these new LLMs, and there's many of them, but if you ask an LLM to provide the investment sentiment or the investment perspective from an individual post, it gets it right. And it's because it has all of the domain experience built into the training of that model. Does that mean that the arbitrage or the insight goes away? I don't believe so. You can certainly recreate the buzz index. The advantage for the buzz index is it's been around since 2015. So there is some live track to it to look at. But now I look at the data set or all the labeled data in data science terms of all of these millions and millions of posts as a commoditized area of the market. But that doesn't mean that it takes away the ability to find alpha from that data set. To me, it's almost like looking at a Bloomberg terminal. We all have access to a Bloomberg terminal and everything it brings, which is stock price history and and price analysis, fundamental analysis, this massive amount of information from which some managers are able to extract alpha and idea generation and others are not. And now you can include in that sentiment data or social data or retail data, but then really what to do with it is how you're going to harvest alpha from the strategy. We've spent many years thinking about how to do that. Some will use it as signals and short-term quant trading strategies. Some will think about it from a more fundamental perspective. There's lots of use cases for the data set. It can be applied in different ways, no different than price history on a stock or a commodity. Mm -hmm. So the challenge for a manager today isn't access to the data. That was 10 years ago challenge. Today's challenge for a manager is what to do with the data, how to group it, how to harvest ideas from it, how to do the alpha capture problem effectively and generate alpha through that process. Thank you. That's so interesting. So I guess your point is, while the data set is now quite readily and easily available, it is huge. And therefore, the amount of different things you can do with that data, the amount of different insights and signals over different durations is still so vast that some investors will be able to successfully find alpha while others may not. Yes, no surprise. There's no magic answer in this data that's going to lead to permanent alpha forever. And there never is in any data set. So it is a unique data set. Its uniqueness has become more commoditized, But it's a data set that didn't exist 10 years ago and now up to the investment community to do something interesting with it if they can. Yeah, makes sense. So can we come to today then? What does your sentiment analysis, whether it's the buzz sentiment or all of your fusion work looking at individual clusters and contributors, what does that all tell you about market sentiment today? Very interesting from a buzz perspective that we are in a market environment once again, well suited to having sentiment insights. So the sentiment insights and the types of stocks that are being most talked about by the most number of people in a positive way seem to be leading our market. In the face of many that wouldn't have expected that, especially as we've gone from an interest rate environment shift of zero to five percent and all of the challenges that presents and all of the challenges that should present to certain types of companies, 
the stock market is looking through that or the sentiment part of the stock market is looking through that and people are constructive and bullish. So an interesting signal there. Mm. So we've spoken about all of the insights and the alphas in this space, and it's such a positive, exciting space, I think. What about challenges? I mean, what would you say the headwinds really are for Seeking Alpha in this space? Well, one of the headwinds is finding the data in the first place and gaining access to it. I would say, in broadly speaking, there's probably fewer platforms that have scale of people talking about stocks from an investing perspective than people might think, right? There's only a few platforms that really drive most of the conversation. Getting access to the data from that platform can be challenging depending on how long you've been in this space. Of course, many platforms are undergoing change themselves and reevaluating their own strategies for their user community and engagement, which will have an effect ultimately on people's access to that data. So, that might be a challenge, especially if you're coming new to a space and don't have existing relationships. And when you're leveraging these platforms, are you really doing it for U.S. equities or are you gleaning insights from other equities as well? So it'd be wonderful to say that everywhere around the world, people congregate online and discuss stocks of their local markets and really engage with one another in that regard. But what we find is the truth isn't quite like that. I'm Canadian by way of example, and Canadians just have a very different risk tolerance and cultural bias towards stocks in the stock market than Americans do. Americans seem to love to talk about stocks at the dinner table, at the water table, at the water cooler, and uh, of course on online platforms, where Canadians just don't do that as much. You'd see that probably in retail flows, especially in options-related retail flows, which are huge in the United States and next to nothing in Canada. So the amount of conversation online really seems to be a cultural phenomenon. Europe is very similar to Canada. You're from the UK. Sorry to say you're very much like Canadians in that regard. There's not a ton of conversation. And I would say the same for you know Germany and France and those other local markets. Interestingly enough, China would probably be the second biggest in terms of individuals congregating online to discuss their outlook for equities and individual equities. But that requires a whole different type of natural language type model and understanding of the local markets. And it's not a focus for us. That's really helpful. Thank you. And actually on the European retail investor, it's worth noting that we recorded a podcast on this topic a few weeks ago. It was with Chris Andrew, who's really our market structure expert in this space. We see a share of volumes from the retail investor so much lower in Europe than in the US. Having said that, there are spaces or pockets of outliers. So we find the retail investor in Italy is more dominant than the UK. The retail investor in small and mid caps in the UK, including trading names in the FTSE 250, more active than for the FTSE 100. So there are little pockets we seem to find in Europe where the retail investor is more dominant. And also we find that the retail investor investor is slowly but surely growing in presence in pockets of Europe, presumably catalyzed by many of the same forces that we've discussed already. Well, we'll look forward to the tipping point where that conversation extends into the online sphere and we can find some interesting insights from the local stocks that they may be discussing, which would be different than the domestic U.S. equities that we hear most about. Yeah. So before we close, can we just take a step back and think about the industry at large? We've obviously witnessed enormous change in the five or 10 years since you launched the Buzz Index. We've discussed the fact that access to content, access to information, to data, to tools, to models is so much easier today. So Jamie, what's your take on how this industry evolves from here? 
amazingly, while I thought we were on a pretty steep curve over the last 10 years, the advent of the large language models, the chat GPTs of the world has steepened that curve. Things are going to change quicker, I think, than people expect. They're amazingly useful tools. They have many different applications within finance, let alone outside of finance. I would be surprised if you're not already considering how to incorporate insights or that tool into your process, whether it be a traditional research process, a data-driven process, an investment process. You absolutely have to be considering that. It's something I'm frankly quite excited about, right? But yes, I would say lots of change will happen, continued change, faster rates of change because technology isn't slowing down. It's only accelerating and its use cases are also accelerating. Yeah. And as you said earlier, I think you can never rest on your laurels with an alpha signal, sit on an alpha signal and assume it will be durable over the longer term. As all of these things evolve, presumably you'll need to refine the data and the processes you really use. We have that conversation a lot with investors. I agree. And I always use the analogy of an app on your phone, right? You know, if you look at any app on your phone, it's version 12.1.2, but you've had it and used it for many years, right? And so that's the concept of evolving investment strategies. A strategy or an alpha signal starts in one way and then evolves over time and you peel back another layer and release a new app version because there's a new insight to be had or a a new tool that can reflect some new insight. It makes looking back on these strategies, as we discussed earlier, difficult to do because it's hard to compare version 12 of your app to version one. It's so much more superior and functional and has much more insight and utility. And that's something that we sort of are trained to want to do in finance is, well, let's look back at how this did in steady state over the last decade. And it doesn't work like that in practice. Yeah. And before we wrap up, Jamie, is there anything that we haven't covered that you think we should have covered that would be relevant to our listeners? Well, I think hopefully you get a sense, you know, enjoy the journey of the research. It's wonderfully rewarding to add individuals to your team that have a different background, a different way of thinking of the world that you can learn from, they can learn from you and realize that it's a journey and not a quick trade and there's no magic insight to be had and there's always something new to discuss and debate and refine and work harder on to be better for you as an organization and your investors ultimately who have entrusted you with uh, stewarding their capital. So don't be afraid of doing the research. Sometimes the research leads you nowhere. Sometimes it leads you to a thousand more questions, which is just as fun. So I'll close on that. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. This has been such a fascinating discussion. Thank you for being so honest and detailed, really, about how you're going about sourcing alpha from social sentiment. It's really amazing to hear directly from you as a pioneer really in this space with the Buzz Index. So thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in to this bi-weekly podcast from our group. If you'd like to learn more about Jamie's work and Periscope Capital, please do take a look at their website, which will be in the show notes. Otherwise, if you have feedback or questions, then please do go to our website at jpmorgan.com forward slash market dash data dash intelligence. And there you can send us a message via the contact us form. And with that, we'll close. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube.
The views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. and its affiliates, together J.P. Morgan. They are not the product of J.P. Morgan's research department and do not constitute a recommendation, advice, or an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. This podcast is intended for institutional and professional investors only and is not intended for retail investor use. It is provided for information purposes only. Referenced products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. J.P. Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures forward slash sales and trading disclaimer. For the avoidance of doubt, opinions expressed by any external speakers are the personal views of those speakers and do not represent the views of J.P. Morgan.